This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space, a monthly podcast of artist talks, panel discussions, and other events. Tēnā tātou katoa. No mai hoki mai ki tēnei kaupapa korero, or the Physics Room. No mai whakarongo mai whakatau mai. My name is Abby Kinane, and I'm the director of the Physics Room, a contemporary art space dedicated to developing and promoting contemporary art and critical discourse in Aotearoa. Based in central Ōtautahi since 1996, we assist artists with resources and opportunities to enable creative and professional development and work to support the acknowledgement and understanding of contemporary art among New Zealanders. Our goal is to actively seek links between the arts and other areas of cultural production, and to involve art as a contributing voice in wider intellectual, social and political debate. No my hoki mai. Welcome to episode 31 of Art Not Science. I'm Hamish, the Writing and Publications Coordinator at the Physics Room. In this episode, we're sharing the audiobook of the first issue of our new serial publication, Correspondence. So this free biannual serial will publish pairs of audio, text, or page works, which are initiated as a form of correspondence to recognize the fundamental role of relationships in contemporary publishing and artistic practice, to support them and to make them audible. These may be standalone works by individuals or collectives that call out across the issues, or more direct collaborations and messages between one another. Correspondence calls forth an abundance of voices, an unpredictable chorus. This chorus should include readers of all bodily experiences. Our work with accessibility advocates and members of the blind and low vision community has developed into a set of guidelines for contributors to use when recording their contributions, seeking greater connections between the work we publish and the communities we inhabit will continue to make audiobooks a core part of our publishing work. Correspondence Volume 1 features work by Kirsty Dunn, Komi Tamati Elif, Joan Fleming, Terry Craven, Shivanjani Lal, Sancintia Mohini Simpson, Faith Wilson, and SMA Ranapiri. These relationships have produced a viscous material of sorts, of language and imagery, which forms issue one of this volume. The experiences of mass extinction, of intergenerational migration, transcontinental genealogies, and reclaimed language, all offered up by the contributors to this issue, take to the page as, and in response to, the author's ongoing artistic practices. These same relationships will return to form issue two. Each of the contributions to this audiobook are read by their author, and they include image descriptions and other information as seen in the print and digital versions of the magazine. You can pick up the print version for free from the Physics Room's gallery in the Market Square at the Art Centre, 301 Montreal Street here in Ototahi. You can also find this audiobook and other digital formats free to download on our website, which is physicsroom.org.nz. 
alongside the free print, audiobook, PDF, and EPUB editions of the publication. Our designer and developer, Emma Kevern, is working to develop an accessible audiobook and e-publication platform on our website, due for release alongside issue two, which will conclude the first volume of Correspondence. Collectively, we hope that the work of Correspondence will offer not only lively works to a wide readership, but also attend to the relational spaces that are vital in all of our work as designers, editors, artists, and writers. So let's begin with a description of the magazine's cover. The cover of this first issue is smothered in a bold, leafy green that fades away around the edges of the large tabloid page. The publication feels light for its size and easily foldable in its newsprint form. The perforated edge of each page on my fingers feels kind of like newspaper should as I turn it over in my hands. Looking at the verdant green of the cover, my eye is drawn straight to the large, white, handwritten title that runs down the right edge of the page. Correspondence. Top left, in the same thick, inky white font over the hazy green, it reads, Issue 1. Then down the page, filling the rest of the cover, are the author names and titles of each contribution to this issue. This handwriting fills the green fog, but mysteriously, an arrow points to the end of each of these titles, swoops under each contribution, and disappears over the spine. I open the floppy, folded tabloid to look at the front and back covers side by side. Here, those arrows join up with another list of names on the back cover, under the heading, Volume 1, Issue 2. These are the corresponding authors who will appear in issue two and complete the first volume. The first double-ended arrow links Terry Craven and Joan Fleming with themselves again for issue two. Faith Wilson from issue one joins up with SMA Ranapiti in the second issue on the back cover. Kirsty Dunn and Komi Tamati Elif write back to themselves in both issues and Shivanjani Lal's work in issue one is tethered by a fourth and final double-ended arrow to Sancintia Mohini Simpson on the back cover for issue two. The handwritten title that led down the right edge of the cover is mirrored on the back cover, running up the left edge, to read again, Correspondence. You are listening to installments from the audiobook edition of Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1, published in December 2021 by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. This is the January episode of our monthly program here on Plains FM, Art Not Science. Now, back to Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1. November 13, 2021. Tena Tata. This is Correspondence a place where the relationships that enable our creative labors and unevenly shared struggles are made legible. Like a snail's slimy trail or Kedadu's drunken slipstream, the cover design of this first issue renders the transits between the friends and mentors in this publication visible in print for a moment. The experiences of mass extinction, intergenerational migration, Transcontinental genealogies and reclaimed language shared by this volume's contributors 
take to the page as and in response to their own ongoing artistic practices. It reminds me how our lively bodies and our bodies of work can never be cleanly separated. The editorial model of correspondence, inviting contributors to make work in correspondence with another contributor of their own choosing, prioritizes the communities that artists work within, above the presumed authority of editors to determine who speaks on the pages we resource and who reads them. These relationships become forces upon me and my labors. Like the Ngaituahudidi Fenua that holds me, they are conditional offers I am called into reciprocity with. I take on the editorial task as one that implicates me and my porous Pakya body in the work that appears here. So I keep an eye on myself. Power no longer invisible, but enunciated and struggled with, on and on. In these pages, the fugitive slime of knowledge and identity is shared, kept safe by the relations that have realized its viscous reality. These same relationships will return to the page to form issue two. Until then, look after one another. Hamish. You are listening to installments from the audiobook edition of Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1, published in December 2021 by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. This is the January episode of our monthly program here on Plains FM, Art Not Science. Now, back to Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1. So this piece is called Against the End. It's a collaboration and a conversation between me, Joan Fleming. And me, Terry Craven. So it's a, it's a conversation between two friends who are trying to come to terms with how to take the truth of the climate crisis into their bodies. So I'm a poet and an essayist. And I'm a painter and a sculptor and a bookseller. And I live in Madrid. And I'm in Nam in Melbourne. So as well as a kind of conversation between two friends, this work is a conversation between mm, multiple art forms and art disciplines, I suppose. Um, The work that we've made is something of a farrago of elements. There's text, a a kind of a dialogue between Terry and I that's taken the shape of a sort of an essay. There's photographs of Terry's paintings in progress. There's line drawings that I've made in black ink of the rats who, as you will hear when I read out the piece, are such a preoccupation um, of of, uh, my thinking in this conversation. There's also um, lines and scribbles and notes to self in Terry's hand. And I think there's a real feeling in these pages of something in process, um, something that's still being worked out. So Terry, why don't you say a bit here about what your process was in, in coming to, to make this work? Yeah, um, thanks, John. I think um, I decided just to give a brief introduction because we really got the feeling as, and I think you will too, as when you hear the text, that um, they kind of really speaks for itself. Whereas, of course, these images are, are a, a, pro, a work in process and um, 
and the process is, is really a formal part of, of you know what, what is seen on the page so I just to sort of lead us into that a little bit to kind of see what aligned me with the kind of direction I was taking and so I'm as I, as uh, I said I'm principally an abstract painter and a sculptor and I work with found objects and um, as much as I do with something with uh, acrylic paint or concrete and plaster and uh, kind of developing interest in land art and the, the contradictions of land art making land art as an urban dweller and someone who is very urban. Um, so when it comes to working on the theme of the climate emergency, and this is a topic that has connected Joan and I for a, a good while outside of or alongside our artistic practices, which we've also collaborated together for a good number of times on uh, climate um, emergency stuff, as well as um, making books together. Um, so it was important for me to think about how um, abstract art making can then sort of should relate to, to this issue. Um, both aesthetically uh, and kind of commercially or financially, I suppose. Um, and I say that well, commercially or financially because I think it's important to recognise, or it was for me it was during this project more than ever, um, not only how abstract expressionism was co-opted early on to serve capitalism and US national interests, but how this legacy really clearly, as we can all see, clearly lives on in the, in the current art market. So, you know, without making, it's not too bold of a statement to say that speculative capitalism and climate justice are kind of mutually exclusive. So whether or not the artistic aesthetic practice of abstract art making, whether it can free itself or not from this inheritance is an important consideration and um, something that I think about quite a lot outside of this project, generally speaking. Um, so with that said, I kind of did want to have a basis to work from. I, I was kind of thinking around how I could get into a come into the to process of making something um, and um, kind of two principal themes kind of kind of came up for me and um, firstly the kind of idea of the infographic um, which is something that Joan and I uh, have used a bunch of times and we come across in climate emergency talks um, you know climate oriented infographic is once incredibly useful um, but also I think um, perhaps kind of rooted in some of the problems that um, the climate uh, struggle is attempting to tackle and it kind of can be self-defeating in certain certain way. Because on the one hand, obviously, you need to challenge the cognitive distances that occur around climate emergency. We need to understand what the problem is. We need to understand how, what we're ignoring and the consequences of that um, and the extent of the problem. So they've got to be useful. But equally, by reducing information to something incredibly consumable, intellectually kind of bite-sized in, in figures and dots, and I will use the, um, the dot um, I, I kind of feel that we kind of truncate ourselves from the, the very world that we're burning down and from the very um, connectedness that we can have with the world around us. And um, it's very challenging to have when we live in an age of precarity. Um, and so, um, yes, the idea with infographic kind of reproducing the logic of separating ourselves from the body um, of the damaged world. And so I kind of decided to kind of try to use this as a um, formal technique to do meditative grief work using the infographics kind of dot um, as a starting point. And so we're working from a, a list of the Southern Hemisphere list of extinction, extinct species. Over the past 300 years, I would um, make a dot for every listed species and attempting to kind of meditate on that loss as it happened. Well, as I made the dot and to kind of consider it as I read the list through. And obviously this proved like kind of difficult to do. And this is something that Joan and I have um, talked about a lot, climate grief. Um, because obviously for an hour I was, or you know, however long I was working on the piece at that time, I would be making these dots and trying to feel it. And um, it's something that you don't particularly want to do. And part of the problem is often that we've encountered is a desire not to do this, um, to not to do this and feel it in the body. Um, and so I was kind of making these marks and attempting to um, to meditate. Um, so there's this 
the fact that I didn't really want to do, do that some of the time. I'd rather be <laughs> scrolling through Instagram or something. Um, um, it's not fun. <laughs> um, but then there's also an aesthetic element, you know, making this was on a white canvas. And so like making these bold, I wanted making bolder marks, messy marks, more beautiful marks and for it to fit together. And so there was a kind of challenge in which I was trying to let the dots happen, uh, which are black ink on white canvas as they started. And then to kind of let them vary and see where that went and see where it, you know, um, and sometimes that's because I got lazy. I didn't want to meditate. So I just make a lot of dots in a row and, and uh, you can kind of see it as the piece uh, goes on. Anyway, this, the white piece begins to, uh, accumulate with acrylic and pencil and then soil and some glue and varnish and tree bark and the second image which was on um, black canvas initially with black pen was kind of alongside the dot making um, which was to write the names of these um, uh, the, the species and I would write out the name of the species and scribbling them over and over on top of each other um, initially in black because I felt that the silence of an erased species might be um, being written on black ink on black canvas seemed appropriate but I was obviously aware that you know that we cannot function in a void we cannot mourn without something to mourn for and also aesthetically um, I was kind of preoccupied about there being something to hang your hat on um, in, in visually so I didn't want to fall into the same trap of, uh, of giving, giving us nothing to, to to, to, to see and to, to read. And so the kind of that preoccupation runs through the, um, the images which are on black, the second image. Um, and so it starts off in black ink and black uh, text and then expands to different colors and paints over and it's a kind of palimpsest of writing and painting. So yeah, that was kind of a long introduction, but that's um, to give us to the, to the text itself. Um, Joan, um, we can guess we can move through and, and go through the pages. Yeah, yeah, let's, um, let's have a look at the, uh, the work itself, yeah, the pages itself and uh, and how they kind of work on the page. So, so um, yeah, as I said, uh, there's a there's kind of mixture of elements and the work is spread over eight pages. On the first page, um, against the end, the title, it has a slash after... Um, after it and it's in large green font and then on that first page um, you see my um, my side of the dialogue which is in sort of upright Roman text and then right aligned you see Terry's part of the dialogue which is in italics so slanted text and then occasionally you'll see um, quote quotations in bold from other um, poets, philosophers, and writers, eco-critics, um, and people like that, that I've woven into the to the text. Um, and in addition to the text, of course, there's there's um, there's images. So Terry, do you want to talk to the images on the first page, first and second page? Sure. Yeah. And so we start. Um... First image we see on the left aligned on the on the first page of our work is um, the black canvas as I prepared it with the first layering of black paint that went over it. Um, beneath that and th this here, the black paint is not quite dry yet, so you can um, you can see it kind of ref slightly reflective. Um, just beneath that, um, there's a kind of scrolling um, in which was taken from uh, some of the work with the dot work. On the second page. Um, we have the, a photograph of, on the right aligned, just near the top right hand side of the page, we have a, um, an image of the extinction list 
in, in with black ink on white paper on sitting over the top of the two canvases before they've really been touched. Um, mm. And then we have Joan's image. Yeah, so also on this page, um, there's a line drawing of mine which shows a scientific diagram of a rat. So you can see the rat is kind of leaned back and kind of splayed out in what looks almost like a relaxed posture, but the organs are visible. You can see the outlines of the rat's organs. And instead of the usual labels that you would see in a diagram like this, such as heart, intestines, spleen, or whatever, the organs are instead labeled as, um, and I'll read out the labels, first fleet, drowning trap, pity, tubercular sneer, dark broth, and obligation. And when we move on to the next page, kind of occupying a good, um, it's kind of left aligned and a thin slice of the black image as it continued, the black canvas image. And this time we have writing of the um, species in, in different colors, uh, in red and um, a beige. Um, there's been some painting and layering, so you can see faded in the background some of the other names as I, I painted over them. Um, and just below that, we have some more of the kind of dot work that's been sort of copied into the text. And it says, habitat raised to ground. Mm. And then on the other page, it's another one of my little rat drawings. Um, this was a drawing that I... I don't feel that I kind of accomplished it perfectly. I, I misplaced one of the rat's eyes um, on the one side of its head. It's a kind of a rat in, um, in profile. And I, I misplaced the eye. And so I, I drew another eye next to it. And so it has the effect of being kind of quite like endearingly comical and sweet and kind of wrong. And yeah, I think, I think that drawing um, embodies like, ah, I don't know, some of my complicated feelings towards the rats that I'm writing about in this piece, you know, a sense of like fellow feeling as well as, you know, your classic repulsion. Um, and underneath that drawing, there's um, handwritten text of mine that's kind of overlaid, that giving us a sense of opacity. And it says, um, my pest, my problematic mirror, my metaphor and then it says, more harm than good, question mark. Yeah. And then underneath that is uh, an image of both canvases, right, Terry? Yeah, here we have both canvases. Um, it's kind of small and it's um, some of the text is over, overlying this. This is the bottom right-hand side of the page. Um, and this is after I've done a good amount of dot work on the left-hand image, which is in white, and the good amount of layering, writing, and painting over um, for, the, for the black image. Um, when we move on to the next page, uh, I'm going to describe on the far left and on the far right, we have samples of the same painting, uh, the white um, painting, um, but it's been, a, it's been advanced a fair, fair, while, fair while here. Um, so uh, here we see the image has been laid up with a kind of thick, pasty whiteness. Um, and this is, um, this is plaster that I'd used to kind of paint on and as it dried, kind of struggle with and remove, as well as some, you see layered in some of the point work underneath. And some of the point work I tried to work in afterwards or carve out of the, um, the, the 
plaster with with a black pen um, as part of the meditation process. You also see some smears of black paint mixed with mud. And on top of those, we have some more of Joan's writing on the very bottom left and the top right of the double spread. So the top, bottom left of the left-hand page and the top right of the right-hand page. Yeah, so more of this kind of overlaid writing that um, is perhaps legible, but is perhaps also illegible. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then we have the final double page spread. Um, See, so yeah, and on this, yeah. and this, um, on this, uh, it starts off, we have this point that, that extends, that then becomes a line, extends off the bottom of the page. And I would tend to draw these when um, it was the last of the genus, um, uh, of the last of, this, of the completely extinct, not only the, the actual species, but the entire genus of the species. And this was something that I came across quite often. And as I was doing the work, and I'm just getting a little bit emotional, as, um, as I was doing the work and I was uh, doing this and I would read these the loss of habitation and, and you'd see this uh, last of, um, you know, genus uh, uh, mark or remark on the thing, on the, on the list, it was incredibly moving and kind of difficult to see that um, a sense of finality and a sense of really of ending. And, and, uh, and so this, this mark here comes on the penultimate page. Um, beneath that, at the bottom of the page, there's actually a, a um, an image of the black of the black painting near near the end, um, but also the the desk on which I used uh, it was I was leaning at the time. So you see a white smear on the right hand side, um, kind of the bottom right, taking up a good amount of page, or page almost half of it. There's a very kind of close up mark image of the white of the white painting with semi dried white paint and some kind of black smears where dots have become the ink running down. And by this point, the the painting had really kind of taken a life of its own. And um, and it kind of moved moved beyond the simple dot mark. And the last image, the, the last thing that is there, is a green line that that, that makes its way. This is the first um, kind of bit of color that touched the white image that moves off the page on the right hand side, and will lead eventually to a much more colorful, hopefully more joyful third image for the next issue. Um, yeah, and that's a kind of physical description of the pages as you see. Mm. Okay, shall we read? Yeah, let's read. It's going to work nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, okay, maybe I'll start here and read the read the, the opening. So Terry Craven and Joan Fleming against the end. Thank you for sending me the extinction lists. Desert beton, Capricorn rabbit rat, lesser stick nest rat, broad cheat. Hopping mouse, Nevis rice rat. I find them unbearable. Hello, how are you? We are in the sixth mass extinction. We are the only species to be keeping scrupulous track of our own willing hurtle towards the end. What does extinction require of us? You drop a black dot on a white page and try to feel the loss. Reading gives the facts a home in the brain, but what about the body? What about the shadow, the shadow we are? It is impossible to be exact about the numbers. LK Halt, the darkness is greenish with creation and behaving like particles. Last night, rats stripped the broad bean plants. 
every leaf gone. They were already waist high. This morning, as I sat on the back porch, drinking feral tea and murmuring the name of my life, there was a moment when my vision caught. I couldn't trust my eyes. Along the fence, where there used to be green fruiting, there was now just a row of green spikes. Tom Van Doren, what obligations do we have to hold open space in the world for other living beings? Black canvas, starting point, writing, scrawling the names from the extinction lists, layers, a concrete covering, grave for them, perhaps. I'm not sure whether the names will be legible, but perhaps I can print them out and have them alongside, yes. I want to be exact about the numbers. One site says 25 million native birds are killed every year by rats, possums, and stoats. We say pest, we say pest and sneer. We don't say who brought them. Dom handles the rat traps gingerly when he sets them, wearing gloves and smearing peanut butter or ham onto the trigger plate. If they smell our human smell, they will avoid the traps. We have not caught any. Have you heard about the drowning hope experiment? If I were to draw this out as an infographic, what would each point say of the endling? Only the way by which we can misknow it. Many historians have argued against the fact that the dodo became extinct because she was delicious. Poor dodo, she lived on fallen fruit, so easily captured or beaten with sticks. The Dutch East India Company is still the largest mega corporation in human history. They dealt in silks, metals, porcelains, soybean, sugarcane, tea, livestock, and human slaves. Hungry sailors, they particularly savored the dodo's stomach and breasts. The black rats, accidental on their ships, also predated on the dodo, but humans were the apex predator and we wrote about her. She was the first species whose extinction was conceded in writing to be caused by humans. Guam Reed Warbler, Bermuda Saw Wet Owl, Oahu Akialoa, Rodriguez Blue Pigeon, Rinches Duck. Do you know what I mean when I say thickening? Is it possible to thicken a page with our not knowing, make texture from a loss that is impossible to conceive? There is something I've been trying to say and I haven't found a way to say it. I have wanted to write in order to take the fact of these extinctions into my body because the great dithering, this historical moment we're in, takes its power from its own abstraction. I have wanted to make it real, to take it into my body like a dark broth. Why watching a documentary like the Anthropocene was like watching science fiction? Can we even understand now in our bodies this greater thing, the common? And I find I like all her names. Black rat, roof rat, ship rat, ratus, ratus, thought loops, thought loops. It is possible she is not the monster. Layering black ink on black acrylic on black pastel, and I had the strong impulse to add lighter tones, white smears, red names, brown names, green names, some beautiful tricks. 
with black on black might view and not ask, is there anything there at all? And am I not betraying something here? Dom has made a fresh drowning trap from a Coke bottle strung across the mouth of a bucket filled with water. The Coke bottle gets smeared with peanut butter and when Rat walks onto it, the Coke bottle spins and she will not hold her balance. He found the instructions online. Alice Oswald, there are so many birds and most of them mean nothing. White canvas, starting point, the black dot. Meditation on the extinct for each dot, finding the place in the body, building up. What feelings will emerge? What, what feelings, what lines? So this is what Catherine told me. A set of scientists discovered that rats could swim in water for eight minutes and in the ninth minute they drowned. So the scientists put rat into the water, let her swim to the edge of drowning. And before the ninth minute, they took her out, dried her off, gave her food and water and rest, and then put her back in the bucket. They found that rat would keep swimming right up to the edge of drowning again and again. She would swim valiantly into the ninth minute. And this was proof that rat had hope. Greta Thunberg. Adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. This morning, the Coke bottle was muddy with prints and activity, but nothing was drowned. No one was drowned. Rat might have left the peanut butter to Possum, who is too large to drown in a bucket. Worlds are not containers. They are, from Donna Haraway, risky co-makings, speculative fabulations. For someone, surely, the empty bucket is a proof of hope. You know, I was shocked, Terry, the first time I observed you licking Kitty's head. Now I think about it all the time, that small gesture towards becoming animal instead of reducing everything to a human mark crossed out black dot. In Aotearoa, one often encounters the fact that possums have tuberculosis. It thickens our repulsion because they strip the bush and blitz the nests and overreach their entanglement in every particular. It must soothe us to think that the possums are sick because they make the land sick. For us, they are dirt. In Lord Chesterfield's definition, quote, matter out of place. If we happen to touch an object a possum has touched, we sanitize our hands. Here on Wurundjeri country, ring-tailed possums are original. They run along the power lines and leave pellets on our drying sheets. They take one bite out of every plum. The Melbourne Zoo wants to fence them out. They belong, they're a problem. Oh, Pseudocurius peregrinus quote, sometimes confused with the black rat. Rattus, rattus, generalist omnivore, complex plague, pest reservoir, resilient disease factor, famous for the Justinian plague, typically builds a spherical nest, a sampler, fine disperser of fungal spore. In the carrier bag of her blood, the range of disorders she can distribute with no harm to herself is astounding. Binge on dots. Dissolve dot to tongue. 
Dot. Fuck the existence of dot. Make each endling a dot. 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 If you had to say where power lives in your body, what would you say? Hands, wrists, head, root. If you had to say where craving lives, is it the same place? In Nichiren Buddhist cosmology, the lower paths are hell, hunger, anger, and animality. Heaven is also on the lower path because rapture is passive. When I used to smoke, I would feel the craving in my wrists and in my jaw. My jaw is where I hold the power of a nightmare after waking. For me, the fear ratchets up from my solar plexus to the back of my throat. Have you tried medication? I've been asked that so many times. In last night's nightmare, the afterlife was a kind of purgatory where in petty social groups, we played out our worst selves in circles. The only escape was space. I could propel myself into the dust and yaw between the planets. And in the dream, there was nothing peaceful or connected about that. It was an active terror. Dom's determination to exterminate grows by the day. It feels fucked to be composing with while not wanting to be living with, as twisted as coddling the dog while feeding him pinkish strips of pig meat. Kick the anti-cockroach spray further under the desk, away from the guests. What can an egg or a fledgling do against rat's capacity? Rat can go anywhere. She can climb trees. Only 3% remains untouched. Our species climbs every tree. I added too much paint here and I can't remove it. And there was a time when still drying, it would have been passable. And now I'm just trying to pick it off or cover it over. The mark is so crude, it's kind of painful to look at. I appreciate the irony, trying to feel extinction and just getting hung up on a single painter's mark. Hubris, cognitive dissonance. Underneath lie the array's names. I have always known my dominant lower path was hunger, endless craving. Cheap nature is over. As a worker, I keep thinking, why are you averting your eyes from this? What in this can be brought to joy? Can happen. Can happen. Have you heard of this place, Rung Jungle? Australia's first major uranium mine on Malak Malak country. It supplied US and British nuclear weapons during the Cold War. When the pyrite in the waste rock and tailings was exposed to air and water, it created radioactive material and acidic liquid waste that's been leaching into the riverbed since. People report seeing thick salt crusts made of heavy metals and radionuclides, pools of water in rich red and aqua green. Nothing lives in that water. It was a Malak Malak woman who first showed a white prospector named Jack White the bright rocks that would bear uranium. 1949, and of course, there were sacred sites nearby. I read that the punishment for the woman's transgression against country was bodily. It was taken into her body. She contracted leprosy and spent her remaining years at the Channel Island Leprosarium. So Medean, no? The site is still considered culturally unsafe. Traditional owners won't go near it. 
a big king brown snake dreaming is considered to have been activated, radionuclides as venom. I know we are the instruments for catastrophe, but I'm asking about the body because I want to know how we can be instruments against catastrophe. And if we can, then perhaps there is a place in the body where the heat for that fight lives. This um, might be the most tiring painting project to date. If each time I place the black dot, I take the loss of a species into the body where I feel it is in the back of my throat. I'm sick and fatigue, wanting to switch off, wanting to slip into sleep. The names just keep piling up. I read the reasons for extinction, introduction of non-native species, pollution, annexing of water for use in agriculture. I don't want to continue. And if there is... Should it be marked? Pitjantjara healer and artist Timpulia Mervin says that in the old days, wild cats used to attack and kill people. They were at their most dangerous during drought. Feral cats with poison spirits killing adult humans when the country was sick. Do I believe her? Do I believe her story of how the heat arrived in her hands? Where has reason got us? Obviously, the droughts are on their way. We have armed the earth. Alice Oswald. There are so many birds and most of them mean nothing. But once or twice a gannet from a nest of slovenly seaweed hops as far as those stones and stops. We've abandoned the drowning trap, baitless in the backyard. The plastic of the white bucket is so old, it crumbles when I kick it. I don't mean to. Dong has cut away the ivy along the foot of the fence to minimize habitat. Would you believe me if I said that each dot was felt as an endling's death? One of, of the bean not. plants, rat stripped to its stalks, has sprouted a new head of leaves. There have arrived now more white blossoms. <sighs> yeah. I'll just read um, the, the acknowledgement of where the quotations are from, which is at the bottom of that yeah. last page. So they're from uh, L.K. Holt's book, Capacity, Tom Van Doren's book, Flight Ways, Life and Loss at the Edge of Extinction, from Alice Oswald's book, Nobody, a quote from Greta Thunberg at Davos in 2019. It's a quote from Donna Haraway from Staying with the Trouble, Making Kin in the Thulacine, and The Great Dithering is also her phrase. The Rum Jungle Story is from the IATSIS publication, the Right to Protect Sites, Indigenous Heritage Management in the Era of Native Title, which is edited by Pamela, Pay, sorry, Pamela Faye McGrath. And uh, Timpulia Mervin's story is from the book Traditional Healers of Central Australia, Nangari. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's pretty fair to say all of this is ongoing, um, not just the grappling um, the grappling with this abstraction of the climate crisis, but also the grappling with personal responsibility, um, the grappling with 
what's the role of art in this fight? Um, mm. And also the activist work, the civil resistance work that Terry and I um, do together from different sides of the globe now to, um, yeah, to force a social tipping point so that we can try and halt this absolute mental runaway shit fuckery that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, a burden that we both carry and something that we both work to, you know, use our privilege to resist and rebel against. Mm. And a desire to, that I think, it was actually Joan who took me to my first um, Extinction Rebellion meeting. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and a kind of uh, something that was just a constant challenge and uh, this, this feeling of not kind of doing enough, even in the artwork, of wanting to switch off, of wanting to look away, of wanting to be present. And rereading has really brought it back, you know, um, into, the body, into my body. I'm feeling very moved and, and, and it's, not, it's not sustainable, I think. We'll see what emerges in the next book, but um, in the next issue and the next piece, I, I really did want to work on the kind of joy of the fact that we're connecting across such distances and that we have shared so much and there's so much beauty involved. And I, I really hope that this, it, this is the direction it goes in because it's, it is true that it's unsustainable to, to live only in this feeling of kind of grief, <laughs> you know, um, which I'm feeling right now. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> Love you, Terry. Oh, I love you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. You are listening to installments from the audiobook edition of Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1, published in December 2021 by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. This is the January episode of our monthly program here on Plains FM, Art Not Science. Now, back to Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1. This audio description will be in two parts. The first part will describe the pages of the work being shared, and the second part is a reading of texts that are included and not included in the pages being shared. The Story Lost Before the Story Remembered by Shivanjani Lal Spoken by Shivanjani Lal On the first page, you see an image and text. The image is of a horizon with blue skies and low-level clouds. The landscape is of sugarcane fields and low-level mountains. There is a black and white cow on the left-hand side. There are two pieces of text, at the top and at the bottom. At the top it says, the story lost before the story remembered. And at the bottom it says, the shoreline as a place of separation and great longing. On the second page, there are two pieces of text. 
The first describes an encounter with the speaker and her uncle. And the second describes how she's feeling at this present moment. This piece of text was written during quarantine after coming home from the UK. The third page has an image of a horizon. This horizon is of the sea. The image is two-thirds of the image. Two-thirds of the image is of the sky. It is mostly blue, but it has a big white triangular cloud. On the left-hand side, there is a big scraggly tree that cuts into the sky. In the final third of the image, you can see the blue of the sea and the sand. This image is a place called Koratongo. It's the place that I grew up in when I lived in Fiji. The image was taken in 2004, back before I was an artist. Page four has two pieces of text, between which there is three dots. The first text is about a river and a memorial. The second text is about the images that live under the skins of my grandmothers. My grandmothers are very important to me. They're the people who I make my work for and they have been gone a very long time. But for me it's really important to remember that they have lived complete and whole lives. Page five and six. There are three sets of images that are repeated. Across the three images, a horizon forms. This is Karatongo Lagoon. This is where I grew up when I was living in Fiji. On three of these sets of images, going in a diagonal, the words, island time feels different on the wrong island, is written in white. The last image has been destroyed and is... The last image of these three sets of images is an image of a headland and part of that headland has been um, marbleized so that you can see an image that becomes unclear as you keep looking at it. These images were taken in 2004 back before I was an artist. July 2019. A man hails the car my dad is driving on the way to Bartown. He stops for him. 
and my mama climbs into the car, sitting next to my aunt and mum. He needs a lift to FSC, Fiji Sugar Company. It's on the way, so we're happy to offer him a lift. He's a cane worker. It feels important to listen to him as he speaks to my mum. He's a living reminder of the Girmat history. And what he says resonates. He's scared about the future. He knows his children don't want to be cane workers. Why can't they have the better life they were promised? He knows that there might not be anyone after him to take care of the land he tends. Ese ese here, he says. This is how it is. The future feels unknown. It is destiny. His voice shakes, but he insists on wanting to share cha with my mum. She says no, telling him that this fleeting moment of meeting was enough. Was it, though? We leave him at FSC. Across the road, I see a globe being held in two hands with a magnifying lens over Fiji. A sign underneath says, Sugar for the world. Sunshine hits my skin and we drive on. I am remembering 87 ships sailing black waters, 60,965 bodies moved through the Kalapani, the dark tides holding land in their bodies, Mirapurvaj. Only 60,553 arrived in Viti. I am remembering those who fell, those who couldn't make it across to that better life of false promises. In the shadow of sugarcane lies this great big history. Similar to a line drawn in the sand, this time up against the wall, temporary and temporal, localised colonial power. I spent 50 weeks with no shoreline, only riverbanks. The tide flowed and swelled and I learned another. 350 days between a beginning and an arrival. There is no return or returning, only actions to remember. Reading here becomes an act of recollection, a repetitive stress action shared in asking those around me to repeat my words. Maybe a new action can occur. Are ill-gotten flowers an appropriate offering for the gods on stolen land? Torn away from homelands, replanted, remade, breathing new air. I am remembering the valley road. Gunna feels whipping past on one side, the river on the other. Silver and serpentine capturing light. I only think of this body of water, never the Samundar, when I think of home. I am remembering that I have no memories of my birthplace, only ones that I have made after leaving. My hand in Aji's as we walk the shoreline of Korotongo, 
the arm made sweeter with chilli and salt. Her box full of letters with mine on top. The flower curtain holding the wind like a breath. I have remembered those who fell. This, this is the better life we were promised. 60,965 bodies moved through the Kalapani, the dark tides, leaving Desh, moving towards Vanua, holding land in their bodies, Mirapurvaj. Only 60,553 arrived in Viti. 87 ships sailing black waters. They had birds and fishes under their skin, papery and translucent, as though they would disappear when they slept at night, disappearing into their blood only to return in the morning. I used to trace the lines of initials and flowers, wondering how they got etched onto my grandmother's bodies. It was a comfort to see marks so lived in. I imagined dark nights, and laughter ringing out as their marks were made. Imperfect and fragile, when I touched them, I felt whole histories. You are listening to Installments from the audiobook edition of Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1, published in December 2021 by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. This is the January episode of our monthly program here on Plains FM, Art Not Science. Now, back to Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1. You're listening to I Just Want to Party Till I Die, written and narrated by Faith Wilson. The text is a poetic narrative split into three parts. The first part is called I Partied So Hard My Toenails Fell Off. The text is centred on the page with varying line lengths, some shorter than others. The second part is called DNA Tests, Rahui, Ancestry, Desuetude, Don't Pick Up That Phone, and the layout switches between small paragraphs aligned on the right-hand side of the page and on the left. There are also some pull quotes that are in different font, and some footnotes that are on the page too. Part three is called Please Don't Edit the Septless Daddy, and a poem, and it's a poem with two columns on one page. I'll read the footnotes at the end. The work was inspired by my clan gun ancestry, which is on my father's side. I know more about my Samoan side than my Scottish and English side, so the piece imagines going back in time to the Scottish Highlands and looks at coming to terms with my colonising history and fantasises about going back and changing that course of history. Now I'm going to read the work. I partied so hard my toenails fell off. I partied so hard my toenails fell off. My body is a shell and my cells generate new cells to replace the dead things. I drank myself into a stupor. I became one with the earth's beat. I spewed up eels and rainbows and guns. I spewed up coconuts and taro leaves and strange names, and I spewed up hair and nifor that I ate off the root of a plant. I bound my feet with taro leaves and walked back through the tracks of my ancestors. I trudged through the mud. I wiped the mud on my face. I slipped and I fell and I ate dirt. I ate earth. Tired, yet still I walked. Tired, I ate tuna from the river. I ate coconuts from the tuna's head. I reached the shore, and I reached the ship, and I drank juniper gin, and I lost my head. 
I leaned overboard and I looked at my reflection on the water and I saw my father's face and my mother's face and I couldn't see myself. I danced to the beat. I danced to the ocean beat. I danced to the beat of my blood. I danced and I ate roasted boar and I bled ancient DNA into their gin and their wine and it tasted like nectar and it acted like poison and we danced till we fell and their heads fell off and I was the only one dancing. The only one still left on my feet. My feet bound in taro leaves. I pushed their bodies onto a pyre. I burnt the pyre. I danced around the pyre. I ate their flesh. I ate them. My ancestors, I ate them. And I danced and I danced until the taro leaves came off and my feet were bloody and my toenails fell off. And I fell and I slept near the pile of burnt bones. I shed out the bloody histories of my colonizing forefathers and foremothers and I smelled it and it smelled bad and I'll never get that shit stench out of my head. I remember it with every step I take on this vibrating whanua, on this land I now call home on this land that has housed me and accepted me and whose beat I have synced with. I walk with the stench emanating and I walk with gratitude and a head hung in shame. I get used to the stench. I live with the stench. I'm at peace with the stench. I use the stench to write a new story. The story is about how I walk between worlds and how I walk between my histories and the footprints I leave become legend. This is a story about how life becomes myth. DNA tests, rahui, ancestry, desuetude don't pick up that phone. Everyone takes a DNA test to discover whether their blood is more exotic than it really is. We're all just flesh on bones. We're all just vibrating cells. The heart of the universe is a steady, insistent beat. The sound of cycles in sync. Footnote 1. You can still be romantic about your lineage. Descended from paramount chiefs in Vaimoso Si Umu, Fasito Otai. Descended from the chiefs of Clan Gun. We're all vibrating cells. We all have our own beat. We're all flesh on bones. Alt pax, alt bellum. Either peace or war. Footnote 2. Gun means war in Old Norse. Clan Gun is one of the oldest Scottish clans, descended from Norse Vikings, thirsty for blood and a reputation for fighting. Either peace or war. Don't fuck with me or I'll kill you. We're all vibrating. Mitochondrial Eve, wrap me in your arms. We're flesh and bones. We're each a chapter in the myth of our Ngafa. Inheriting stories, tall tales, and then we write our own. What stories will you pass on, and which will you take to the grave? If you want to find the secrets of the universe, think in terms of energy, frequency, and vibration. Footnote 3. This Rahui is making me pissed off. My phone vibrates with the energy of a thousand managers asking me if I've seen that email, followed up on that meeting, updated that document. And that, my friends, is called frequency. Don't you dare touch that phone. Footnote 4. Descended from gods, I took comfort in the bosom of my mother's stories. I suppose that the earliest memories of most of us concern our mothers. Footnote 5. But I want to write a story about my fathers, all of them. I resisted them. Do I start in the highlands of Caithness or with the street rats of Bermondsey? Do I start as the ship arrived on the shores of Aotearoa, where one story ended, another myth began writing itself? How they fought in the highlands and built castles out of bones? How the stories they told were passed down? What histories do I call upon and what has been omitted? What is pure bullshit 
and what are the stories still live in me? What are the stories I carry like lead in my veins? Am I stuck with them? Or can I rewrite them like you straighten the crooked teeth from your dad's side? Can you purge and shit the stories out like a good liver cleanse? What if you don't like what you see and worse yet, what if you are unmoved by it? What if you dive down through the wreckage and you emerge the surface, to the surface with nothing? I can only start with what I know. Let me write you a story. Please do not edit the set list, Daddy. Footnote 6. This is my daughter. She is yours too. She is where the seas meet, the tidal race. She is woven from ancient tongues and brackish water and laumei and jellyfish and tuna and tartan and gun smoke and sword and mud. She is not yours to sacrifice. She belongs to the sea and she will bring peace and she will also bring war and she will return to this point when she is old and greying and she will weep for her forefathers and her foremothers and she will weep for her children. Lost to the sea, lost to the sea, lost to the sea. So raise her to know the taste of salt in her bones, to know the sharp smell when blood mixes with seawater. Raise her to walk between worlds, harden the soles of her feet, to write stories from sea foam and equally to forget them. For thirty years I wrote my own myths and for the last year I burned them. Some of us lost our tongues and some of us had them cut out. In Caithness and Sutherland you roamed for thirty years, poor and white, footnote seven, starting fights with Clan Keith and then you had me. But I was a wild thing with bones in her hair, a wild thing with savage tendencies, with savage thoughts and a taste for blood. And you realised we're not so different, either peace or war. You held me as a pepe by the feet and you stood at the edge of the cliff. Here, take this wild young thing, take this dark wild thing and I'll never fight again. And the sea rose to meet you and Tangaloa's voice rang back. Footnotes. Footnote 1. Footnote 1 is a quote from Stephen Strogatz's book about vibration called Sync, How Order Emerges from Chaos in the Universe, Nature and Daily Life. I was interested in the idea of there being a heart of the universe and that it provides a beat, a music that we unconsciously live by. Footnote 2. This is the official clan gun motto, Alt Pax Alt Ballum, either peace or war. I was so struck by the savagery of it. Footnote 3. This is apparently a quote from Nikola Tesla, but I don't know where or when he said it. I just like the way it sounds. Footnote 4 is a hilarious song with a funky beat. If you know, you know. Um, footnote 5. This is a line from a book, My First 80 Years, written by a relative on my father's side, Helen Wilson. I grew up actually thinking she was my great-great-grandmother or something, but found out recently she was an aunt or second cousin. The book is boring as hell, but is an account of early colonial life here in Aotearoa, particularly their settling down south. And footnote 6. This comes from a note at the bottom of the Clan Gun Wikipedia page. It made me laugh that someone write, would write a note in all capitals telling someone not to edit the sept list. A sept is a family branch or clan. And lastly, footnote 7. That's a line from Sylvia Platt's poem, Daddy. You are listening to Installments from the Audiobook Edition of Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1, published in December 2021 by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. This is the January episode of our monthly program here on Plains FM, Art Not Science. Now, back to Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1.
The title of this work is Tongue Tide, spelled like the tide of the ocean. It was created in response to the Physics Room's correspondence series and is a collaborative work by Kirsty Dunn and Komi Tamatialaf. The first page of the work has a black and white image of Whakaraupo, Littleton Harbour, as seen from the front porch of Kirsty's flat. You can see the road leading toward the tunnel roundabout, ships in port, and beyond that, their Waipapa, Diamond Harbour, across the bay. On the right-hand side of the page is a series of messages that have been printed, cut and pasted onto the page to replicate a conversation between collaborators about the beginnings of the project. Kirsty and Komi will read their messages now. Hey, so what are your thoughts rewriting slash arts collaborations involving te reo Māori things and poetry and piss takes and whatnot? Asking for a friend. In brackets, me, the friend is me. I'm all for it. I mean, essentially, outside of teaching, it's what I've been doing lately with various talented weirdos. Then I send a photograph of a handwritten letter, a copied email and some other notes that I'd prepared and left in Commie's mailbox. I then send the accompanying message. Soz, a bit of reading material I drop off during Hikoi tonight. Lowercase x. Anyway, your wondrous folder containing letter, slash, etc. I'm very into it. I read it all. In order. I'll have a crack at it soon. Uh, brain think. Did you actually, because I was like, what is the point? He won't actually do it in order. He'll be like, rules, nah, and start from the last one. Ha ha. Okay. I read the letter. Then the rest. Read the last second. I knew it. Then I started all over again, and read in correct order. This is my way. I got your poem. I haven't opened it yet. Haven't opened the envelope. Then I send three cringe face emojis. I told you what I was doing. Do us both a favour and burn it. Okay, I thought maybe you thought it was shit, but didn't know how to tell me. Lol. The following page has a poem written by Kirsty called Tongue Tied. It is typed down the left-hand side of the page with lines meant to reminisce the terraces of waves, with sentences broken up in an attempt to replicate the stop-start sentences of the language learning process. Tongue tied. What catches in my throat sometimes is the way closeness sounds a little like hard rain, and so too does the bailing out of it in places unwanted. All this water I don't know what to do with, except ask for three kinds of fish to be etched into my skin that they might have somewhere to swim. I try to remember where the small horizons that make the difference are meant to go, but even the names for these can be slippery with all that inquisitive water. But back to the fish, I guess, and what I was saying about some of us being hooked in the throat, and the way the sound of scaleless skin lighting its way through water Sounds a little like my actual wanting to be closer in its own way, too. I try to remember where the small horizons that make the difference are meant to stay, but even navigating these can be difficult, with this constant rain and these curious tides. Maybe I'm not just treading here, though, but moving ever so slightly. Perhaps this place, this island, where a throat is a fish, and ink is like hard rain, and hard rain is a little like the bailing out of itself, is closer to close, to me, 
than I think. One small horizon, one welcoming wave at a time. I'll talk to the fish and get back to you. On the following page, the poem is repeated, though this time it has Kirsty's handwriting in an attempt to show what she was meaning. For example, the word throat is circled, and beside that is written, koro koro, the throat, the ika, the wanting. What catches in my throat sometimes is the way closeness, tata, sounds a little like hard rain, ta-ta, and so too does the bailing out of it, ta-ta, in places unwanted. All this water I don't know what to do with, except ask for three kinds of fish to be etched into my skin that they might have somewhere to swim. In this part, I'm referring to uh, Kitty Tai and Kitty Wai, um, and the ika that form my tāmoko, so the mangopare, the hammerhead shark, the pātiki, the flounder, and nihil tanifa. I try to remember where the small horizons that make the difference are meant to go. Here I'm referring to tohu to, or the macrons above letters. But tahatu sounds a little bit like tohu to, tahatu is another word for horizon. Even the names for these can be slippery. Here I'm referring to the to in tohu to, which is also a word for anoint or moisten. And then I refer to all that inquisitive water, which is just me trying to be funny, because why sounds like you're asking a question. But back to the fish, I guess, is another attempt at humour, because hoki means to return, and it's a type of fish. And then I refer to some of us being hooked in the throat, which is a play on the words mato for some of us, and mato, which is the word for hook. And the way the sound of scaleless skin lighting its way through water is a play on korokoro, or the lamprey, which sounds a little like my actual wanting to be closer in its own way too, so the word koro, desire, coming back into play there. I try to remember where the small horizons that make the difference are meant to stay, but even navigating these can be difficult with this constant rain and these curious tides. So the word difficult I've circled and put uawa, which is the word for difficult, but constant rain underneath because the word for rain is ua. And curious tides is another play on why asking a question. Maybe I'm not just treading here though, but moving ever so slightly. Perhaps this place, this island, where a throat is a fish and ink is like hard rain and hard rain is a little like the bailing out of itself, is closer to close to me than I think. And those are repetitions of the earlier plays and words at the start of the poem. One small horizon, one welcoming wave at a time is a play on waves of the ocean, but also the word for wave, which is pōhiri-hiri, and this idea of pōhiri being to welcome. I'll talk to the fish and get back to you. Again, is hoki, the type of fish. Following is another print of the poem, this time with my, me, komi, my notes upon it, in an attempt to decipher Kirsty's sneaky reo Māori ambiguity. I point out some connecting kupu between English words and their reo Māori counterparts. She writes, What catches in my throat? From this I gathered koro koro for throat, which is also a type of fish, referring to the three kinds of fish and general fish theme swimming through the poem. Closeness, tata. Hard rain, tata. Bailing out, tata. To the untrained ear, um, they're much the same words in te reo. Yet, 
they are indeed very different words, a bit like keke, cake, keke, armpit, and keke to creek. At least two of these words you don't want to get mixed up. There's a few wild stabs in the dark, failures perhaps, here and there and decrypting what Kirsty is saying. Etched into my skin, she writes. So I'm thinking, your tamoko? I reckon. Um, also she writes, but even the names for these can be slippery. Hemania nga kohatsu e tatana ki te waimahira, kei taka, kei rumaki. The rocks close to the inquisitive water are slippery, lest they slip, lest they drown. Careful now. Lau. Uh, scaleless skin, she writes. Pa ngohe ngohe, which is also a type of fish. Yeah, a transparent type of fish. She writes, lighting its way through the water. Oh, a lamprey. Lamprey? Is that how you say it? Sounds a little like my actual wanting, she writes. Koro. Wanting. Oh, hooked in the throat. Koro. Ah, oh, I see what you're doing there. And now, what else have I missed, I'm wondering? A throat is a fish. Oh, thanks, Kirsty. just in case I missed it. Thanks. One small horizon. Rumaki, to disappear below the horizon, but also to be immersed in water, to drown. Uh, since we're talking lots about water here, but also reo. Um, yeah, so to immerse yourself in te reo Māori too. Cool. Is that what you meant? I'll talk to the fish and get back to you. Hoki. To go back, return, also a type of fish. Yeah, I missed this obviously and just related to it because I talk to living and non-living things all the time, like the walls in my house. The next page is my explanation and description of the project. The type words take up almost the entire page. I guess this project began as a love letter to Te Reo Māori and as an attempt to correspond with other learners and speakers though this was complicated by the fact that I had to resort to using English in order to do that. For this reason, within this self-indulgent letter-slash-sort-of-poem-slash-experimental-piss-take-slash-tenor-series-journal-entry-slash-thing, there is also an inherent promise to keep learning. To not just tread water, but to really keep moving, no matter how vulnerable I need to continuously make myself in order to fulfil that promise. As the project grew and shifted and changed, this idea of vulnerability kept rising to the surface. It became increasingly evident to me that the various facets and components of creating something, of collaboration, of translation and translation as collaboration, of language learning, and of the correspondence which helps facilitate those things, each require you to make yourself vulnerable in different ways. I think a sense of vulnerability exists in all of our attempts to correspond with others on a daily basis. Of course this varies in intensity according to context, but surely our attempts to communicate with others inevitably involve sharing something of ourselves each time. And yes, those attempts might be carefully curated, but I reckon even then the person behind that curation is bound to seep through. To be honest, I find this both intriguing and terrifying in equal measure. To me, there is also a very particular kind of vulnerability at play when you ask someone to collaborate with you, and I think it's intensified when it's something creative, and something you aren't quite sure of yourself yet. It's intensified further when you want to attempt to represent what it is to be a te reo Māori learner and all the difficult, 
weird, hilarious, awe-inspiring, annoying, sad, embarrassing, empowering things that come with that. When you want to celebrate the intricacies and complexities and relationships that live within the language while you're only just learning to swim inside it. Lately I've been thinking about how not being able to understand and not being able to make myself understood are also part of the creative Heidinger too. Because when I put the mahi out there, I don't get to peer over someone's shoulder as they're reading and ask, do you see what I'm doing here? What do you make of that? Once it's out, it's out. The thing will be whatever it is to whoever reads it. It's maybe the most obvious thing about creating and sharing things, but it is, nevertheless, still quite frightening as well as wonderful. Every single time. So, along with the attempted bilingual-ish slash language love letter thing, I also took this kaupapa as an opportunity to break the rules a bit. To take correspondence, quite literally, to do what you aren't really supposed to do, and show the working, both in terms of the poem itself and the collaborative process. To pass the notes over your shoulder instead of attempting to peer over it and simply say, here's what I'm trying to do, this is what I mean. I also asked Kami to be part of this first publication too, because, again with the self-indulgence, I also saw this as an opportunity to get someone to write back to me, to share what they think I mean, what they read, what they get out of it. I wanted to see if a poem about te reo in English that relies on knowledge of te reo Māori and words that sound like other words and the multiple meanings of words and bilingual puns even works outside of my own head. I wanted to see what might get lost, but more importantly, what might get found in the process of translation. Looking at the poems side by side is, for me, strange and funny and awkward and beautiful, much like it feels to be on the real waka, actually. I don't think navigating this space will get any easier as such. I also don't think the creative Heidinger and putting the mahi out there will be any less daunting. But what I have learned is that being vulnerable can get you places you might not otherwise have visited. So send the tono, answer the message, learn the kupu, use them, make mistakes, laugh at yourself, dip your toe in already. Maybe the echo will bite, maybe they won't. Look, you made a ripple anyway. On the final page, the correspondence continues with cut and pasted messages. That's your job. But I think I need to see your poem. Okay. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm doing. I I guess the choice is see it now and we'll talk about it and that's part of the first publication. Oh, yes, yes. Or I just do it, you see it when it's published and you respond to it however you want. I'm just experiencing creative constipation. Seeing your poem will be the laxative. That might be the nicest thing anyone has ever said about my writing. Ha ha. Uh, then I reply to... Yeah, because waiting on the publication will give me anxiety. Welcome to my life. Also, if you read it and think, nah, not vibing it, you're not obliged to continue. I have a backup plan. Lol. I'm going to stare at the envelope for a while first and see what it conjures up for me. Okay, but did you read the thing yet, or did you burn as instructed? <laughs> I'm going to read when I have a clear head. Tomorrow's. I started writing a thing to what I think it could be about. Lol. Can you see the moana from your place? If you can, could you send me a photo? I was thinking it could be a cool way to bookend the pages and overlay an image of what I see from my whare on the first one. 
overtop of correspondence, and then what you see on the last page is a kind of play on perspective and the ocean and translation and all the things in brackets. Or not, if you think that's dumb. Lol. It's funny how our houses are just out of sight from each other, but we can see the same Moana. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly what I was thinking. The final image on the page mirrors the first image which opened the project. It is the view of the harbour from Kami's front porch. In this image, you can see the entrance to the harbour more clearly, while the view across the bay to Te Waipapa is more obscured. You are listening to Installments from the audiobook edition of Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1, published in December 2021 by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. This is the January episode of our monthly program here on Plains FM, Art Not Science. Now, back to Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1. About the Contributors Terry Craven is a painter and co-owner of Desperate Literature Madrid, he is represented by our Nietzsche's 26 gallery, and his writing has appeared in 3AM and the London Magazine. Joan Fleming's latest book is Song of Less, Cordite Books, a verse novel exploring ritual, taboo, and the limits of individualism in the ruins of the ecological collapse. Terry and Joan will continue their correspondence in issue two. Shivanjani Lal is a Fijian-Australian artist, her work uses personal grief to account for ancestral loss. She explores narratives of indenture and migratory histories from the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Shivanjani is corresponding with Sancintia Mohini Simpson, who will contribute to issue two. Faith Wilson of Samoa, Germany, Clan Gun, and England is a writer and editor living in Tamaki, Makoto. She is the founder of South E Press, a staff writer at the Pantograph Punch, and has published work in many local and international publications. Faith is corresponding with SMA Ranapiri, who will contribute to issue two. Kirsty Dunn, Tiaupouri, Tirarua, Ngapuhi, is a writer, researcher, and mama based in Ohineho. She recently completed her PhD in Māori literature in English at the University of Canterbury. Komi Tamati Elif, Kaitahu Teatiawa, is a propagator of Te Reo Māori a musician, rapper, and lecturer in Māori and Indigenous Studies who teaches reo throughout the community with regular collaborations with kaitahu artist Turemeke Harrington, kaitahu artist and writer Kitty Jardin, and kaitahu ngaitai musician Marlon Williams. Kirsty and Komi will continue their correspondence in issue two. Emma Kevern is a graphic designer based in Ototahi, her recent work has included exhibition poster design for Hot Lunch and website design for local artists. That was Kirsty Dunn and Call Me Tamati Elif with the final work from the audiobook edition of Correspondence, Volume 1, Issue 1, followed by information about each of the contributors. You can pick up your own copy of the print magazine for free from the Physics Room's gallery space in the Market Square at the Art Centre at 301 Montreal Street here in Ototahi. You can also find this audiobook and other digital formats free to download on our website, physicsroom.org.nz. Thank you for listening. You can tune in next month on Friday, 18 February at 8pm for our next episode of Art Not Science. Matewa.
The Physics Room is generously supported by Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Three Boys Brewery, Scientech, Resine Paints, and the Crater Rim.